independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. All of these earlier fires in living landscapes all came with ecological boundaries. You have to burn by season. You have to burn by time of day. You have to burn by what nature, what kind of vegetation is present and available to burn. So there are all kinds of checks and balances. And if you exceed that, which you can for a while, then the system degrades and you have to abandon it. You have to leave. It fails. But when you go to burning fossil fuels, it's basically unbounded. I mean, you can burn day and night, winter and summer, wet or dry. It doesn't matter. And so all those old ecological borders and constraints are gone. And the problem is that there's no place to put all the effluent. So it's going in the atmosphere, changing climate, it's going into the oceans, acidifying. It changes our relationship to vegetation. So we, we have altogether too much bad fire and not enough good fire. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so if you value our work, you can support us at patreon.com slash greendreamer or through purchasing our fundraising planners at greendreamer.com slash shop. In this episode, we're honored to be joined by Steve Pine, a professor at Arizona State University and mostly a fire historian who has written fire histories for America, Australia, Canada, and Europe, including Russia. This is a really fascinating discussion on our historical relationship with fire and what he calls the pyrocene, which is like an ice age equivalent for the age of fire. We also talk about how the Eurocentric colonialism driven forms of forestry conservation, sidelining indigenous knowledge and indigenous cultural burning practices resulted in making the landscapes in the United States more prone to destructive and eruptive types of wildfires, as opposed to the otherwise more regenerative and actually necessary healthy fires for these ecosystems. So there's a lot of nuance and we're going to uncover all of this. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. I grew up, you know, in a suburb. The only experience with fire was uh, birthday candles <laughs> when we went camping, have campfire. But then a few days after I graduated from high school, 18 years old, I got a job at Grand Canyon National Park as a laborer. And I was signing my papers, and they had a notice that one of the guys on the North Rim fire crew couldn't come, and they were anxious to fill the position. So they asked me, would I like to be a firefighter? And I said, sure. And they flew me over, and it was a real moment of biographical wind shear. Totally different world. Uh, no idea what I was getting into. It changed my life. 
Mm-hmm. I returned for, for 15 seasons, all the way through college, all the way through graduate school, beyond. And then finally, it took about 10 years. There were two totally different lives. I had one life at the North Rim, and we were remarkably isolated. I mean, we had no newspapers, no uh, phones, no personal phones, very poor radio reception, no television, certainly no internet. And it was great. Well, I'm really excited for this discussion because we've talked about wildfires before on the show, but not with Mm -hmm. the same historical angle that you've taken. So I'm wondering if you can take us back to lay the grounds for us in sharing how our human ancestors likely first came upon fire and established a relationship with it in a way that no other living creature on Earth has. And what was the significance of that interrelation for us? Well, that's a great question. And it's one that's may be impossible to answer because we don't have the evidence, not preserved directly, but indirectly we, we have a lot. They certainly, just, nobody invented fire. Fire is simply in the world. Earth is a uniquely fire planet. It's had fire as long as it's had terrestrial vegetation. We have fossil charcoal, 420 million years old. So it would have been all around. And in places like the African savannas, you would have had regular wet, dry seasons, which is perfect for fire. And there would have been lots of lightning to start fires. And our ancestors would have grown up in a world that burned. And they would have, at some point, they were able to capture fire and, in a sense, uh, domesticate it, using it for for cooking. That very likely is what gave us small guts and big heads. We got extra caloric content out of cooked food. And then we went to the top of the food chain because we learned to cook landscapes. And now we've become a geologic force because we've begun to cook the planet. So we took something that was really basic to us and in some ways it's become coded into our genome. I mean, there were several hominins who could manipulate fire at one time and now there's just one, we're it. We, we have a species monopoly. It's our ecological signature. So we're a uniquely fire creature. So for me, the, the great, the intellectual interest behind what I do is that I'm studying how a uniquely fire creature has interacted with a uniquely fire planet. Mm. And that's a great marker of what humans have done. Our dominant narratives today on fire mostly lead people to associate fire with fear and destruction. Do you think we've misunderstood the role of fire in our ecology? And what then was the historical role of fire in actually supporting the regeneration of healthy ecosystems and landscapes across the globe? Well, people, as I say, picked up fire from nature. So nature, I mean, not every place in the same way, but nature accommodated fire and had grown accustomed to it, and in some ways uh, suffered if fire didn't come in the same way it, it was used to coming. And in some ways, it's, it's like you know, plants, animals, habitats were adapted to fire in the same way that they were adapted to rain. And it's not just how much rain comes, it's the pattern of rain. So it was out there, and we could learn, certainly if you lived in a fire environment, as they did, they would have learned what what grew up after fire. And then you could begin, in a sense, cooking the landscape to encourage those things. And fire is a great renewer. It's a great recycler. It interacts with things. And and uh, if you want animals in grasslands, you can bait 
traps. You can drive. Well, there's a certain amount you can do by driving animals uh, with fire, but more effective is to entice them into freshly burned areas. That's where they'll all congregate. Mm -hmm. So you would have learned that and you can begin moving herds of animals around by your burning practices. It encourages lots of uh, berries and fruits. There are all kinds of things that, that grow in fire environments and people would have favored them and promoted them because our firepower was a source of our, of our survival. So that's uh, simple economies where you can control the starting of fire. You can decide when and where fire starts. But then when we go into an agricultural setting, you can begin controlling the fuels, the stuff that burns. You can grow stuff. You can slash it down and dry it out. Uh, you can drain wetlands. You can do all kinds of things to make more, more stuff available to burn. And then emulating nature again, you can plant stuff that will grow in the ash. And then the big inflection point comes when there's just not enough stuff. We're, we're greedy. We want more power and we want more stuff to burn. And so we started burning fossil landscapes or what I think of as lithic landscapes as opposed to living landscapes. And that that's when we started going to a fossil fuel civilization. And that has really unhinged the whole fire dynamics of the planet. Mm. So what you just mentioned is really what you call us going from an era of natural fire to anthropogenic fire to industrial fire, correct? That's true. And the anthropogenic fire in some ways, I mean, it's a tame fire. And in some ways, it's a biotechnology. It depends on, you know, fire, fire depends on uh, the living landscape. It supplies the oxygen. It supplies the fuels. I think fire in many ways may be the model for domestication. I mean, we built a domus, we built a home, a shelter to protect the fire, uh, to keep it going. So do you think fire domesticated us? That's a great in question. In the very beginning? Uh, it, in some ways it does. That's a very perceptive observation because, uh, you know, much of the language, at least in English, that we, we have for talking about fire, taking care of fire, is very much the same as taking care of children. We tend it, we birth it, we, we feed it, we, we train it. Fire requires constant attention. So there's a relationship. It's not just a tool that you pick up. It's something you have to take care of. It's different than, say, a stone axe or a scraper. So you, you, yeah, you create, you do create a relationship mm -hmm. with fire. That sounds bizarre, but when you think about it, it, it actually works out pretty well. And we made a, we kind of made a, a mutual assistance pact. I mean, we, we gave fire much wider range to operate in. Lots of places that would never burn on their own, burn with, with our assistance. And we changed the, the patterns of fire on the landscape. And we, I mean, we, we, we've taken fire to Antarctica and Greenland. We've taken fire to the moon. We've gone off planet on fire. Mm. At the same time, fire has made us powerful, really powerful. And in some ways, too powerful. Because all of the, you know, all of these earlier fires in living landscapes all came with ecological boundaries. You have to burn by season. You have to burn by time of day. You have to burn by what nature, what kind of vegetation is present. 
and available to burn. So there are all kinds of checks and balances. And if you exceed that, which you can for a while, then the system degrades and you have to abandon it. You have to leave. It fails. But when you go to burning fossil fuels, it's basically unbounded. I mean, you can burn day and night, winter and summer, wet or dry. It doesn't matter. And so all those old ecological borders and constraints are gone. And the problem is that there's no place to put all the effluent. So it's going in the atmosphere, changing climate. It's going into the oceans, acidifying. It changes our relationship to vegetation. So we, we have altogether too much bad fire and not enough good fire. So that that is the real, that is the fundamental change last 150 years or so created the world we we now live in. And you've said that in a typical setting prior to industrial fire, we would probably have fire everywhere around us for our food as a source of light, heating, even entertainment, and so on. But today, most of our indoor spaces that a lot of us spend most of our time in are sprayed with fire-resistant chemicals, equipped with these sprinklers and smoke detectors, and we don't necessarily see or feel any fire around us. But I'm wondering if that's really an illusion because the combustion just comes in a different form. That's exactly right. And in a way, we think, well, fire is gone, but fire, the threat of fire, the possibility of fire shapes that that interior landscape. I mean, we have special exits and we have building codes and material codes and uh, the design of things. All of it for fire Fire is, is forcing us to live in certain ways. And then we don't see the fires in our machinery, but it's there. We don't see the fire in many of our power plants that is providing the electricity so that instead of candles, uh, and torches, we have electric bulbs. We don't gather around a hearth anymore. We have a home entertainment center, which is powered by electricity. So it, it was more remote, removed ways, a kind of sublimated way. Uh, fire is still there. We're very much dependent on fire and its products, but we don't see it. Mm. The only way we see fire now, if you live in a, a modern industrial urban setting is either as a disaster, something goes wrong, or or you see it uh, on a screen. It's a virtual experience, but we don't really have that, that kind of intimate experience that we had sitting around uh, a fire. And people, certainly my experience is people get very mellow around a fire, and they tell stories. And there's a lot of research that in hunting and gathering societies, for example, and others, that's, that's where a lot of the culture is created at night, people sitting around the fire and uh, telling myths, explaining experiences, uh, just engaging. It, it's a great, uh, we think of it now as a threat, but for most of our existence, it, is, it has been our great friend. Mm. Now we've made it to an enemy. I know part of your work centers on the comparisons between the history of fire in Australia versus America. So what is important for us to know about that? Well, in some ways, the histories are, are similar in that there's a long period pre-European where people used fire very widely for hunting, foraging, 
Uh, it's even associated with fishing. They carried it in their boats and used it at night as, to attract fish for spearing. They used it for agriculture. All of these kinds of all these kinds of things. Europeans upset that pattern by causing a demographic collapse in many places, taking over the landscape, redirecting it to new purposes. Although many times they they continued to use fire. This fire is very common in European agriculture. But then when we begin industrializing, there's there's this big shift and uh, we suddenly see mega fires. We see disastrous fires and they're associated primarily with large scale logging and land clearing. And uh, there's so much fuel around, so much stuff lying on the ground that even a small dry spell is enough to to power it. And major fires broke out and were often disastrous. Hundreds of people killed, communities wiped out. These were fires an order of magnitude worse than what we've seen in, in recent decades. It's hard to imagine it, but, but that's that's the case. And then we began, we were able to uh, control it, partly by controlling settlement. We quit doing those things that made the land so unbalanced. And uh, we began setting areas aside to protect it for, for nature, for parks, preserved forests, and so forth. And in a misguided way, decided that fire needed to be taken out of these landscapes in the way it was take, being taken out of our cities and homes. And this was uh, a task that was given to foresters. And I have to say, foresters went at it with great gusto and tenacity, but they were hopelessly wrong. Uh, forestry grew up in Central Europe. It's a part of the world that doesn't have a natural basis for fire. They had no sense of fire ecology. They simply saw fire as a threat. Uh, they saw it as a as a, an expression of social disorder. Our, America's first forester dismissed the whole American fire scene as one of bad habits and loose morals. Mm. So it was much like Brazil today. Anyway, they were able to control a lot of the bad fires eventually, but they overdid it. And by eliminating fire, they produced all kinds of instabilities. And so by the 1950s, 60s, at least the 1960s in the United States, we began seeing the consequences of doing this. And we realized that we're making the landscape more prone to bad fires, really eruptive bad fires that were outside the adaptive capacity of, of these biotas. They, were, they would be uncontrolled. Uh, this is before climate change appeared. We realized we had a crisis. And so the last 50 years or so, most of the American public agencies, most of our parks, forests, and so forth, have been committed to trying to restore fire. So we spent 50 years trying to take fire out, and then we spent 50 years trying to put good fire back in uh, with mixed results. Some places have kind of succeeded. Some places are uh, are hopelessly behind, but that's the story. In right. the meantime, thanks to our continued use of fossil fuels, climate change, other kinds of pathologies that, that go back to the kind of economy and world we've created, um, like a, a lot of invasive grasses and so forth, we're continuing to unhinge uh, the scene in ways that, that actually make it more difficult to put fire back in. So it's it's kind of an uncontrolled scene. It's uncontrolled in terms of its uh, the lithic landscapes that we're burning, and living landscapes are struggling. 
So what, uh, what my particular goal has been, my, my task as a fire historian has been to try to trace out and understand how this happened uh, and why it happened and what the consequences have been. And why, why does fire look the way it does in the world today? Why do we have too much bad fire, too little good fire, and too much combustion? So you mentioned earlier on the environmental conservation efforts rooted in colonialism that removed indigenous peoples from the landscape a lot of times. This sort of led to the coming in of the bad types of fires that are too eruptive because they might accumulate longer over longer durations of time and then suddenly just erupt because there's a lot more combustible material that's there. So I'm wondering if this also goes to show how important it is to work with indigenous communities in crafting our plan for regenerative earth stewardship and conservation going forward. Well, there's certainly a lot of empirical knowledge for hundreds and many cases, thousands and, and parts of Australia, tens of thousands of years, which, which was wiped out initially. And there was a certain kind of hubris an arrogance that that modern science would would replace all of this traditional knowledge and it it couldn't it didn't and in the case of forestry it was just plain wrong with regard to fires uh, so there's certainly a lot efforts to sort of recapture indigenous knowledge but we also you know it's not just in the colonial setting i mean european elites really disliked fire and they regarded fire as a stigma of primitivism. If you used fire in landscape, uh, you were primitive. And if you found an alternative to fire, you were rational, you were scientific. So they condemned their own peasants. I mean, most of the agricultural peoples of Europe and pastoral peoples of Europe were also condemned by the elites for their use of fire. So, and then it was extended, of course, to the colonial situations, but it was already being applied in Europe. Mm. It's quite, it, it's quite astonishing how this happened. And that's because the, the part of Europe that became especially important in colonial and industrial and scientific terms, beginning in the 18th and 19th century was Northern Europe, which is one of these strange parts of the planet that doesn't have a natural fire setting. And they took that as norm. Of course, they are they are the way it's supposed to be, and everybody else is wrong. And you know, ninety eight percent of the planet is not that way. So they were deeply wrong, and we've we've we paid a large, we've paid a heavy price, and the landscape has paid a heavy price for the loss of that knowledge. But we've been trying to recover it. Certainly, major efforts underway in Australia. Uh, there are some in California. Some of the Northern Right, there are a number of places in the United States and elsewhere where indigenous knowledge is trying to be recovered. But it's not simply it's not simply that it can be resuscitated. 
it has to be adapted to the conditions that exist now. But there are many things we can learn from how did these people do so much burning on the landscape and have a better world than what we're doing. Mm. And they didn't burn the way we do. We're trying to restore fire, but the way we're trying to restore fire is not the way they did it, and we can't get it done at scale in most places. So we have to rethink, and there may be some technological tools to help, but basically we have to rethink how how we actually put fire back in. In mm-hmm. some ways, once you've taken it out, it's like trying to reinstate a lost species. You have to have a habitat that can support it. Because fire will just synthesize its surroundings, whatever is out there. And if you have messed up landscapes, you can get messed up fires. So at this point, how do we know if wildfires are so-called natural to an ecosystem where they can actually be regenerative for the landscape versus the ones that we've essentially brought about due to how we've used and managed fire and changed the landscape? So as we look at our globe, what sorts of ecosystems have traditionally required the role of fire to aid their health and which ones historically didn't, which means that we might be able to attribute them to climate change and human activity. Or at this point, is it all kind of mixed in together? Well, they're all kind of mixed in. So many things are changing so much, but it's, it's pretty easy once you begin studying it to realize what what systems require fire to regenerate, but also to protect against encroachment by by other by other species. I'm thinking of primarily grasslands, uh, say the tall grass prairie in the United States, the, uh, the sour felt in, in Africa, many of the great grasslands in Australia and so forth. If you don't burn these, they, within a few years, can be overrun by woody plants. They're no longer grasslands. Uh, so you have to burn them in a regular way. And if you quit, they go to woods and forest. So that's fairly simple. Other, what we think of as montane forests, uh, a lot of pine species are subject to very frequent surface fires, maybe as often as every every other year or three years, maybe up to five or eight years at least, maybe more frequently. So pretty frequent surface, and it's sort of a surface uh, sweeping of of the uh needles and uh, branches that have fallen down from the tree keeping it keeping the burning up stuff before it gets stockpiled too large keeping uh you know the needles are acidic the fire will turn the soil to a more basic chemistry so that can promote grasses and forbs and that in turn invites insects and browsing animals and all kinds of other things and we've seen these areas as if you quit that cycle of fire frequent surface fire everything else dies out. It's just paved in pine needles and woody plants and nothing can grow. So everything leaves. The biodiversity plummets. At the same time, by allowing this to build up and perhaps younger trees coming in in thick clumps, now that they're not being flushed and thinned by fire, allows more intense fires that can now kill trees that otherwise are perfectly well adapted to surface fires. And we should also recognize that there are there are systems of fires, lodgepole pine, jack pine, a lot of boreal forest, for example, a lot of uh, shrublands and so forth, where the natural pattern of fire is an infrequent fire, but one that basically sweeps 
all before it. It burns through the canopy. If it shrubs, it may burn it down to the soil. Otherwise, it just leaves uh, tree trunks, uh, the stalks of, of former trees. And uh, this is the natural pattern. Mm. So and what we've done, what we've interfered with in those cases is that they used to be patchy that there would be larger and smaller patches of these and different stages could burn at different times. And now by eliminating fire, they've become more of a monoculture. And so you can have very large, far ranging fires. And that system is not adapted to it. It needs the patches, the mixtures of landscapes to accommodate uh, the variety of, of plants and animals. So whenever these wildfires break out in different parts of the world, there's always a lot of news around it. And I think it's easy for people to jump to the conclusion that, you know, that shouldn't be there. It's going to destroy the ecosystem and feel really heartbroken by seeing all these pictures of dramatic wildfires everywhere. So would you say that the point isn't to conclude that there shouldn't be fire in that landscape, but rather that we have to take implications from what's happening in terms of these fires breaking out in uncontrollable manners that are very eruptive and in very large swaths of land. I think that's what we're seeing is a shift. And and partly this is the result of past land use and fire practices, but also climate change. And we're seeing a pattern of larger, more severe fires than we've had in the past. Not that they've never occurred in the past, but but now they're at a bigger scale. And the, the intensity is greater, the severity of the damages can be greater. We're seeing that. We're also seeing fire being used for other projects that are not really fire related. It, it, it's not really a fire problem. I'm thinking about burning peatlands in uh, Indonesia, burning uh, in, uh, the Amazon. These are identifiers seen as, as a destructive force. Well, the destructive force is the land clearing, the draining, the conversion of this land, and they're just using fire as a catalyst. So it is not a fire problem in the same way that managing fire in, say, a national park or a wildland, a fire-adapted wildland w- would be. And in a sense, by trying, by trying to make it a fire problem, we will send in air tankers and helicopters, we'll send in pumps, uh, we will fight these fires is misdirection. the The problem is the the politics and and economy that is encouraging this land to be cleared off, logged, uh, lots of debris left, and then burned for for some other purposes. The fire is it's not really a fire problem. It's a social problem, and fire is a manifestation and a tool of that. But it is it is not. You cannot burn these areas in the way they're burning just by dumping fire on them. You have to do all this other stuff to make that land uh, combustible. Right. So fire itself isn't the problem. It's sort of these conditions that we've created. So when people focus on fire being the problem, then they're going to invest a lot of money in, you know, putting out the fire rather than really addressing the conditions that we've created and the degrading human practices that we've been basically perpetuating. I try it. And, and again, it's another good point because uh, fire is often used to animate other agendas. 
I mean, fire is so graphic, it's so visceral when you see these fires going through. And there are disastrous fires, let's be clear, burning through a community uh, or destroying something where where fire didn't really belong. And people can use that to stir up a lot of emotion. And then they use that that excitement to promote some other something that they claim will be a solution but really isn't. So logging is not a solution to fire, for example. Other kinds of all kinds of people want to use fire. It's a I mean you can't not look at the fires. Uh, if you, you want to use fire to to make it graphic, to endow it with a certain kind of emotional punch. And uh, we do it all the time, and then people propose all kinds of nonsense in response that are really aimed at other kinds of things that aren't really addressed to fire. And so fire fire really isn't listening to all this nonsense. It does what it does. In many ways, it's a contagion phenomenon. It's, it's not unlike uh, our, our virus uh, problems now except fire has no vaccine we we have to live with it mm-hmm. and we have we we certainly live very successfully with fire and became a successful species up until we we got greedy and decided we wanted sort of unbounded firepower and began burning all of this uh, fossil fuel and it has really no place to go and that is unhinging everything so we've gone from natural fire to anthropogenic fire to industrial fire and all sort of changing our ecology as our relationship with fire has evolved. Given that we're currently degrading the earth, bringing about human-caused climate change, and with how we have too much of the wrong type of fire and too little of the right type of fire, what exactly can we do to turn this trend around through the lens of fire? And how do prescribed fires tie into this picture? Well, I think we have a lot of fire in our future. We obviously have to ratchet down fossil fuel combustion as fast as we can. But a lot of the conditions, including climate, are, are already baked into the system, and we're going to be living with it for a long time. But even apart from that, we we have a responsibility to get the right kind of fire on these landscapes, and that will require a lot of burning. And it may require us to rethink the kinds of burning that we do. What does prescribed fire mean? It, it, it evolved as a particular kind of pattern. We need all kinds of stuff. We need all kinds of mixtures of fires. So we'll be ratcheting up our own controlled burning. I mean, in one way, we, we're going to have fire. They can be fires of choice or they can be fires of chance. And it's not just, that's really for us to decide. I mean, this is our job. We are, we are the fire creature. Uh, we are the species monopolist. This is this is what we do. Uh, we're not doing it very well right now, but we can certainly do better. We used to do better. We need to learn from that past how to reintroduce it in a context that makes sense today. I feel that a lot of people, when looking at photos of wildfires burning through forests, even if they mm-hmm. may be regenerative for that landscape. It definitely gets people a lot more animated than, for example, people seeing a bunch of cars on the street or a bunch of cars yep. stuck in traffic um, on the highway. Yep. But they're both they're both forms of combustion, and we actually need more of the regenerative types of fires within our landscapes compared to 
all of this fossil fuel burning that just doesn't feel as visceral to us. And we don't feel as animated by seeing just a a bird's eye view of a photo of a city with a lot of cars in it. Well, you don't see the fire. It's buried in the machine. And for the most part, you don't see the emissions. Whereas with real fire, you see the flames and you see the smoke. The smoke is very visible and people get very excited about it. Whereas they don't get excited about ozone and, uh, you know, nitrous oxides and all the other stuff that's coming out of our tailpipes, uh, which in many ways is, is more damaging. Mm. So it's, it's a re-education program. People don't have fire in their lives. They don't see it. You know, if you're using fire to heat and cook and warm your house, if you're using fire to uh, burn your, your fields and your pastures, and you, you're using it to, routinely in your world, then you can understand how fire works. But if you never see it, everything has been disguised now. We've had all these sec- technological substitutions for it, some of which I welcome. I'd just soon uh, not have a house filled with smoke occasionally. <laughs> but we don't see it anymore. The only time you see fire is in a disaster and we don't really have good stories for fire. You know, we have great disaster stories for fire. We we have great stories of firefighting. It's it's presented as a as a war story. Uh, totally inappropriate analogy, but but one that fits uh, literary templates. Uh, we don't really have dramatic, interesting, engaging stories about restoring fire. It's harder to do. I I can't imagine. A Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. What? How would Hollywood tell that story? I think there are ways, and the challenge for people like me is is to show and get those narratives out there. Otherwise, we're left with the with with imagining fire as simply a disaster. It it's our best friend and worst enemy. But that depends on us. That's a relationship. Right. It's kind of like how water we know is essential to life and typically is portrayed in a positive manner. But of course, people can also drown and, you know, there might be floods and things like that. But you're really right in saying that for fire, we don't have any of those positive narratives of how fire might have been beneficial to to our evolution and to our natural landscapes. They're just not as prevalent in the dominant narratives. So this pact that that we've made with fire, you've said that whether the alliance is a mutual assistance pact or a Faustian bargain may be the question of our time. Do you think that at this point, we have the great capacity to steer our fate to make it so that our relationship with fire were mutually beneficial and that won't lead to our collective demise in unhinging the planet? And what do you think fire would want us to learn from our history to be able to truly establish a positive form of reciprocity with it? That's a good question again. I mean, I have to believe that we have the capacity to to reverse our course. We created the problem. We can, uh, we can begin unwinding it. I, I the, the other alternative, I mean, if you feel that nothing could be done, then you do nothing. And I mean, I've got children, I've got grandchildren. I'm not very happy with the world they're inheriting. And I, I approach this problem from fire. I, I think that, you know, it's not the only thing out there, but it, it turns out to be pretty fundamental. 
to what's going on. And I would like to think that, that I can, I can make, make a change with it. I have to believe that or I'd just, <laughs> I'd give up and I'm not, I'm not willing to do that if only for their sake. Mm. There are lots of things we can do, but we have to get serious and we have to, with regard to fire, we have to think of solutions and responses that make sense to fire. You know, it's not listening. It's not tweeting. It's not, it's not on Facebook. It's not issuing presidential directives and congressional inquiries. Uh, it really doesn't care at that, at some, at some really fundamental point. And if we're going to influence it and get, get right with it, then we have to speak in terms that it understands, not just make it fit our existing ideological and political agendas. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, I'm old school. I'll go with the book uh, and I'll take a fire book. Norman McLean's uh, Young Men in Fire uh, was a, a meditation on a fire, 1949, that burned over a crew of smoke jumpers. And it's, uh, it's, it's a very moving book on, on many counts, a rather profound one. But it's also one that brought fire into the culture in a new way. And that turns out to be very hard to do. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I, I, I have to do something, and we all have different gifts. And my gift is for writing and researching the history of, of fire and, and humanity. And I, I have to believe that it, it will make a difference. And so I keep at it. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Well, there's an old saying that science advances one death at a time. And the most hopeful thing is that a younger generation is growing up without a lot of the idiotic fights and quarrels that have afflicted my generation and those really before and after me. And I'm hoping that they, they will be left enough of the planet that they can begin doing the reforms that I'm afraid the older generation is not going to be able to do. Well, we are wrapping up here, but Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more from Steve and check out his books, you can head to www.stevenpine.com and his Twitter account is at Stephen J. Pine. And he also uses the hashtag Pyrocene. So in case you want to connect with him, definitely be sure to find him on Twitter. Stephen, really fascinating discussion here. Thank you so much for offering us a review of our history through the lens of fire. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Well, good fire made us, bad fire may unmake us, but you know, however it turns out, I'll bet that we we tell the story around a kind of, uh, around a fire. 
Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's intermission song feature is Only the Truth by Johanna Warren. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode.